Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is the 19th century German philosopher Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, known to many as the most impenetrable of all impenetrable German philosophers, but known to a youthful Sarah as the Beagle. Yes, that's right. When I was a kid, dad named our Beagle Hegel, which caused no end of confusion to the neighbors and parishioners who finally simply came to the conclusion that the dog's real name was Bagel, and that was how he was popularly known. But we knew (laughs) that he was Hegel. And dad, you told me that there was a very specific reason why you named this dog Hegel. Yes, because I my standing joke was that I'd taught the Beagle to do flips. Nice. Nice. Very good. <laughs> um, I found that later in life, that was easier to explain than the fact that we named our Springer Spaniel Calvin. I remember my Reformed friends at seminary saying, but why would a Lutheran family name their dog Calvin? And I w- got very embarrassed remembering how I would say, bad Calvin, bad Calvin, go lie down. <laughs> Yes, I've repented of those uh, youthful indiscretions, reflecting a certain level of polemical um, posturing on my part. Well, I don't know. If you can't take a joke in the ecumenical sphere, you're never going to get anywhere. But let's get back to Hegel. So, Dad, why is it that of all the impenetrable German philosophers, you were particularly drawn to this one? Well, I don't know if I've been particularly drawn to him. You know, I recognized early on, the wide shadow that his thought cast. And uh, the philosopher Richard Rorty commented once that Hegel's thought is Protestant theology continued by other means. And this, of course, is very intriguing. And uh, as I'll get into a little bit later, you know, he comes out of the Orthodox Lutheranism of Germany, although at the time he was a student, it was in full-fledged decay and decline uh, from the onslaughts of the Enlightenment culminating in Immanuel Kant's um, uh, little book called Conflict of the Faculties, which basically told the Lutheran theologians, shut up and stay in your corner because we are the tribunal of reason, and we will decide where and when you can participate in a rational way. (laughs) And so that's that's the context out of which the youthful Hegel emerges from his seminary education at Tübingen. His, His thought has been subjected to such a diversity of interpretations, which are impossible to reconcile. It's sort of like the problem you have with Thomas Aquinas, whose thought has been interpreted in so many different ways. And it's hard to know what interpretation could be reasonable or trustworthy. Just to illustrate quickly, there, uh, a conservative Catholic named Cyril O'Regan produced a book on Hegel about 30 years ago, which convinced, I think, the entire Catholic theological world that Hegel was a Gnostic who resourced his thought in the theosophy of the German mystic Jakob Bohme. And to read Hegel as a Gnostic is really quite remarkable, I think. (laughs) But it's an interpretation that's had a lot of uh, 
a lot of um, uh, resonance, a lot of echo. Uh, the American philosopher that I liked, Josiah Royce, uh, spent a philosophical career uh, teaching uh, Hegel's thought in America at Harvard, uh, but had a late-in-life conversion to Pauline Christianity, which was the result of which was his book, The Problem of Christianity. And Royce kind of interpreted uh, Hegel as a monist, the opposite of a Gnostic. <laughs> you know, Gnostics are, are dualists and monists are singularists in the radical sense. So Royce interpreted Hegel as a dialectical Spinozist, follower of Spinoza. And then um, the American champion of Hegel in the theological field in the last generation was a scholar named Peter Hodgson, and he largely recommended Hegel as um, a resource for a kind of process theology a little bit more dialectical and dynamic, perhaps, than Whitehead's. So you just see, I mean, with three significant interpretations of Hegel, what a wide variety uh, of possibilities there are. Well, I'm already bewildered. So tell us why uh, why Henley Key's interpretation is going to be an improvement on all of these other competing ones. Now, I'm not going to jump to the punchline until we've uh, done the hard work of, of earning our way to that uh, decisive result. I'll just say that, you know, you have the notorious difficulty of Hegel's language in general. I recently taught his logic, and as many times as I've worked through this, it is just in places absolutely impenetrable. <laughs> you just can't figure out what in the world he's saying. And I think that problem in language is because he, he actually starts his philosophy with Aristotle, and he adopts a lot of the scholastic Western language uh, of Aristotelian tradition. And then he's playing with all these notions and concepts and, and uh, uh, various other logical terms, quality and quantity and essence and uh, subjective and objective and, and abstract and concrete, all these kinds of terms. And it's, it's, it's all very difficult just in order to get a clear vocabulary to follow what he's saying. But there's also, Sarah, the intrinsic difficulty of a philosophy that aims to capture the logic of change. That is his passion. How is it that one thing can change into another thing? And his basic insight was that identity unites with non-identity to produce a new and enriched identity. Oh, this is the classic thesis plus antithesis equals synthesis. That seems to be like the one popular thing of Hegel that's made it out into the, the general zeitgeist, shall we say. That's right. And, but really, you, that's, that's so, you know, in a way, that thesis, antithesis, synthesis thing is a little bit shallow because what it overlooks is that the power of change Hegel has, thinks he has discovered, is the negative. One becomes something new 
in the encounter with what one is not, which confronts one as a negation of what you are. And out of that encounter with the negative comes either a creative new synthesis or an annihilation. The negative can overwhelm you and destroy you, and that's the end of you. Or you can meet the negative, the non-self, the non-I, and you can preserve something of what you are precisely by incorporating into yourself what you are not. And that's the synthesis that makes you something brand new, something that has not existed before. That makes sense to you? Yeah, I think so. So is his question about change then both where the radically not I comes from and how the I goes about selecting what aspects of the not I are going to be incorporated? Because, I mean, if you're not just going to give up what you are to become what you're not, then there must be some selection process involved in the encounter between the two. Right. And, you know, I I think I'll... I'll, I'll punt on that question for a little while uh, because I, I think that the um, there, there's another inheritance from Aristotle that answers that question, but I don't want to get so far ahead of the game. Okay. I, I still want to spend some time introducing um, why Hegel is significant for theologians. And I have to confess, in, in my early life as a theologian, Hegel remained a riddle wrapped inside of enigma presented to me as an unsolved problem. You know, I knew he was influential, but I could not myself understand him. <laughs> Kant was difficult enough, but intelligible. I even found, I tried to read Hegel in German, and I found that clearer than the English translations. Boy, that's saying something. It is, isn't it? But it's, I made little progress, so... So for me, it was chiefly because of my enthusiasm at the beginning of my career for Jürgen Moltmann, Theology of Hope, for Eberhard Jungel, God is the Mystery of the World, for Robert Jensen, who's a little bit later, his Systematic Theology, but in those days, his little book, Triune Identity. And in my enthusiasm for these authors, I was warned against their Hegelianism. <laughs> And I, so I registered the warning, but I didn't get it. You know, I didn't understand it. I mean, to me, uh, uh, especially Jungle's interpretation uh, of, the, uh, of the atonement, uh, which is probably where his, the influence of Hegel is the strongest, was just compelling for me. We'll have to do an episode on these figures in the future on Moltmann, Jungel, and Jensen. But for now, let me just register that. Now, I did have a bad reaction against Jürgen Moltmann's second volume in the early trilogy, The Crucified God. I didn't like this because it seemed to me to be a total uh, collapse of the deity of Christ into the crucified humanity of Jesus, which flipped Luther's justification of the sinner in the cross of Christ into the justification of God in the face of the suffering creature. You know, and I understand coming out of the history of uh, Germany in the second century, 
that the problem of theodicy would just be overwhelming for German theologians. And the temptation to interpret the cross of Christ as a categorical, unconditional self-identification of God with the victims of the world would be, you know, practically an irresistible temptation. But if in the end all you can say is that God suffers with us, it's not a lot of help. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's almost like we have to help God rather than God through the cross coming to our aid. Right. Well, and we've seen what, what a pure identification with one's suffering does to people morally and spiritually, too. It doesn't do any good to deny it utterly, but to exalt it utterly is just as um, destructive. I think that's right. There's a real danger of the deification of suffering in these kind of approaches. In any case, though, Sarah, I was convinced by Karl Barth, Hans Urs von Balthasar, and Wolfhard Pannenberg that a definite revision was required in theology. The traditional doctrine of the being of God as timeless, spaceless self-identity uh, in theological jargon, as a simplicity so radical, it seemed that it could not even admit the dynamic Trinitarian distinctions of persons. And, and if God is timelessly, spacelessly self-identical in being, how could a free act of creation, let alone a genuine incarnation of God into the creation, how could that be conceived if a priori divine simplicity and creaturely multiplicity are thought of as categorical opposites defined over against each other? You see the problem there? Yeah, it's very clear. And as always in these primarily um, metaphysical um, distinctions of, of that order, the whole like biblical concern with sin and death and hostility to God are just sort of vanishes out of the picture. It's sort of an afterthought problem. And that always kind of raises a red flag for me. You know, it. I, I remember reading um, the encyclical um, with burning concern issued, I think, by Pius Twelfth, if I'm getting the numbers right, just before he died which was smuggled into Nazi Germany and read from all the Catholic pulpits against the Nazi as a pagan heresy. And one of the most important arguments that encyclical made was to protest against the pantheism of the Nazis, that, that the divine is imminent within the blood coursing through Aryan veins, that kind of thing. And it registered in the name of simplicity the protest that this is an unworthy conception of God which besmirches and uh, uh, demotes the divine majesty and that no Christian could ever support such a reduction of God uh, uh, into the cosmos in some version of pantheism. So I think we have to grant that there is a truth, you know, preserved namely the creator-creature distinction in being, 
Um, God is the creator of all that is not God, is the way I like to put that. There's a truth in the traditional doctrine of simplicity. But whenever you try to think this out metaphysically or philosophically, you get into this problem of, um, of, a, of, an, of a dualism, which seems uh, to um, make a free act of creation and a divine incarnation unthinkable. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, right, right. So these are the problems that, that engaged Hegel, uh, who began and spent his early career as a theologian. Now, that's right. He begins as a theologian. At the turn of the 19th, 20th century, a German scholar discovered, edited, and published Hegel's early theological writings. And what we discover there is that he's coming out of a conservative Lutheranism, Lutheran orthodoxy of the 18th century. Uh, and he actually gets his degrees there and spends his years as a privatdozent teaching as a teaching theology in his early career. So Hegel was deeply engaged, involved with theological problems. And this problem of how do you have a doctrine of divine majesty that instead of inhibiting actually enables or empowers what in fact we know of God in the economy, the creation, the creation's redemption, and its promised fulfillment. How do you put these together so that what God does in the economy is a fitting expression of who God is eternally, but not in any sense a necessary one, but always a free act of, of divine love, divine and creative love? I think think we need to clarify there, but by economy, you mean all of God's ways in creation. I think the casual listener will assume you mean like in financial transactions, but it's much broader in scope than that. Economy is a traditional theological word. The Greek, it's used in the New Testament for the plan of God or the management plan of God. I think plan of God would be a, a decent translation. Uh, and it, it is uh, the revelation of God's purposes with the creation that's called the economy of God. And then in theology, this term economy becomes um, adopted to talk about God for us in revelation, as opposed to the imminent or ontological or eternal God, who God is for God in eternity. So it's a distinction, not a separation. We don't know God in eternity. We only know God in the economy. And so whatever we say about God in eternity, we have to say by a kind of reflection on who God has shown himself to be in the economy, in his dealings with the creation. Uh, and again, with these two stipulations, that it, whatever God is in eternity, it must be fittingly and uh, uh, fitting to what God does in the economy on the grounds that God is truthful in his self-revelation uh, self and uh, that it must be free and not necessitated. And the freedom point is extremely important because otherwise divine love becomes 
uh, a necessary act of God's own being, which then makes God's love ultimately self-serving, egotistical. God loves us because he's getting something out of it. And that's exactly what Christian theology always wants to deny. Maybe we can hope that God gets something out of it, but not because he needs to get something out of it. Like, I hope there's some some bonus aspect to being a creator, but not a, a necessitated or constrained one. Yeah, that's right. And we'll get to, that's, well, that, that's an important point at, about the productivity of divine desire that we'll get to at the end. Okay. So anyway, that, that Sarah, is kind of the... Um, the, the set of problems that the young Hegel is dealing with. And here he had a really interesting breakthrough, which I think is very important. Uh, and Ponenberg picks up on this and employs it quite a bit. Hegel realized that if conceptually divinity and humanity are simply opposed to each other and thus divided into respective spheres of being that's the divine, and becoming, that's the human, all right? So you've got the infinite divine being and the finite creaturely becoming. If you set things up that way, unwittingly, you've made the infinite finite. How so? <laughs> it's what is infinite is then limited, blocked ontologically, by our entire creaturely realm. <laughs> right, right. And if that's true, it's in logical violation of its alleged unboundedness. It's a, it's a self-contradiction. It's not truly infinite if it, there's an ontological wall separating it from all finite things. There's like a rabbinic or Talmudic point along these lines is what is the one thing that the, you know, great and infinite God lacks? And the answer is limitation. And so I guess this would be the same sort of thing as to say, well, God has everything except except the ability to change, except the ability to experience limits, except the ability to enter into a world of flux, in which case, my goodness, there's a lot of things that the supposedly infinite supreme God cannot get anywhere near. Very good. Well said. Uh, maybe, Hegel, maybe Hegel got that from the rabbis. I have no idea. But he called his discovery the false infinite, the false infinite. And so out of this analysis, he said, is what we need is a view of divinity, which is capable of the finite. And that's, I would argue, that's a development of the Lutheran principle, finitum capax infinitum, the finite is capable of the infinite. But really, Hegel kind of flips it and says, no, it's the infinite who is capable of the finite. It's not a diminishment of divinity. It's an expression, an exercise of divinity uh, to be uh, connected to, related to what is uh, not God, what is creaturely, what is finite. This also reminds me of those um, classic Lutheran Christological pairings, the, what is it, the genus maestaticum and the genus tapenoticum, is that it? I can't remember right, what the, the, the Latin yeah, is. Of, of humility, yeah. 
but the like the the full exchange of a- attributes if if uh Christ is truly one unified person um and not you know a compartmentalized Nestorian wall down the middle of the divine on one side and the human on the other then the majesty of God must actually take up the humility of the person and also the humility of the the human and the humility of the human must also take on the majesty of of the divine right as long as we always remember that this is a free act of communication and the agent here is the eternal son um, and so it's it's not a, it's not as it tends to become in hegel it is not um, a um, a natural process of exchange uh, that's an interpretation of johannes brentz's theology by the german uh, York Bauer, which I, I think is bordering on a real problem. But let's continue. You're right, basically, uh, about the, the because the Lutheran Kapok's principle was uh, precisely to protect Christology against the Nestorian um, uh, heresy. Okay, now I want to, I punted the question earlier that you had raised about how do we know uh, the power of the negative. How, how does it, how does it, uh, how do we select it and engage with it? Here, Hegel, I think this is very interesting, especially for people who too easily dismiss him as an idealist, as if that means he's living in fantasies, uh, dreamed up in his own head. Uh, begin, you know, going back to Aristotle, uh, which for Hegel was the, he cut, Hegel cut his teeth on Aristotle. And when you, you do your philosophy with Aristotle, thought must begin with what is real. Without reality, there's no thought. And all thought is about reality, which is why thought ultimately has to be metaphysical. It has to deal with ultimate reality. <clears throat> and so now you're, to your question. Hegel would answer with the modern uh, turn of philosophy uh, by René Descartes. And really all of his... Descartes. Okay. René Descartes. Descartes and his project, you know, of the cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. For Hegel, that means we are real. Why? Because we are conscious that we are real. And we are conscious of the vast reality which we are not. Okay, so when I realize when I realize that I'm real, I cannot doubt that I doubt. I am real. I think, therefore, I am. Um, and then Hegel extends this by saying, "Well, in fact, I don't just do this abstractly in my head as a Cartesian thought experience." This happens when I kick my foot on the stone and it hurts. And I realize that that stone ain't me. And it hurt me when I kicked it. And when I encounter another human being who's talking back to me and saying, this Hegel stuff doesn't make any sense to me. Why are you wasting my time? And I am (laughs) negated. (laughs) I am negated by the other consciousness. And then we get into a struggle with each other for recognition. 
you know, and I have to argue Hegel's important. Ah, just a lot of baloney. And we go back and forth. That's how we know that we are real, by encountering the negative which limits us and therefore makes us concrete. Otherwise, we're just like in childlike uh, dreaming, uh, thinking of what we could be and not knowing if it's real or not. How does that sound? Well, it's it's very intriguing in a lot of ways, and I would say it, it's the closest I've ever heard one of these speculative philosophers get to something like human development, because that is exactly what it is to be a child, to go from the solipsistic bliss to suddenly, you know, wanting mama or wanting milk or wanting a toy that some other kid has. And so much of who you find out, I mean, everything about how you find out what you are comes from encounters with others who are not you. So that seems like a, a very positive step. Is I mean, is he introducing something new here in making, uh, you know, struggle or conflict actually central to identity rather than, I mean, sort of the, the um, stereotype about philosophy or, or spirituality, is it supposed to remove you from all realm of struggle and give you a kind of serenity above it all, like the, you know, the untouched majesty of God that would not deign to come down to earth? So is, is he picking up on something in the, the tradition, or is he really bringing something new to this conception of... I think, yeah, I, well, I, I think it's a couple of things there, Sarah, but yes, he is, while he is still within the modern project of the sovereign self uh, of, of modernity instituted by Descartes, Descartes. he is most, de Descartes, he is most definitely, he is most definitely making a historical and social turn so that this is not just an abstract meditation of a thinker trying to doubt everything in order to find certainty. And he's, he's historicizing and concretizing the discovery of, of, of my reality through these confrontations with physical nature and with other consciousnesses. Right. Okay. Uh, Yes, and I think that is uh, much of the turn of modern thought since the 19th century towards history and towards society it can be traced to Hegel. That's why way back last year when we did the episodes on critical social theory, we really had to start out with German idealism as the ancestor of critical social theory. All right, wow, okay. Consciousness. In German... The word Geist, which can be variously translated as spirit or mind or consciousness. Uh, the word Geist. And of course, another translation is der Heilige, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. This is what makes Hegel's first book, The Phenomenology of, of Geist, of Spirit. The phenomenology in a number of exercises shows how we achieve self-consciousness in and through encounters with nature and with other human beings. And that means that philosophy as the love of wisdom and faith seeking understanding converge in describing history, and this is, I think, speaking to your question about children coming of age, describes history as the natural process of the development of self-consciousness, or as we would say nowadays, self-awareness. You're, you're sticking with me here? 
it's a, it's a lot of uh, of uh, strands to weave together into one braid. But I, but I think I'm still with you here. Yeah, you know, in a podcast, basically all we can do is kind of introduce the basic ideas to kind of inspire, instigate people to go and uh, tola lega, take and read for themselves and study this. We'll get to the the very interesting fallout of Hegel's thought and why it's important for theology uh, by the end of the podcast. Okay, well, the ambiguity of that word geist allows Hegel's philosophy of the historical development of self-consciousness smoothly to transition to a specifically Christian kind of theology, which Hegel at certain points claimed to be Lutheran. He referred to that good old Lutheran hymn, that, that Good Friday hymn, talking about the death of God on the Son of uh, on the cross of Christ, uh, much that that's a thought that much scandalizes, um, as I said earlier, the kind of uh, conservative Catholic reaction to Hegel's thought. And in fact, from the very beginning, this ambiguity of the word Geist provoked a split among his followers between the so-called old Hegelians and the so-called young Hegelians. Now, what's the difference between these two? The old Hegelians of Hegel's contemporaries cashed in on the theological potential of Hegel for what they thought would be a modernized orthodoxy. And here I'll mention a really great church historian, Ferdinand Christian Bauer, uh, who kind of used the Hegelian scheme to talk about original Jewish Christianity confronted by... Uh, Hellenistic religion producing the synthesis of early Catholicism. And this was a brand new way of tracing the logic of the early Christian doctrinal development. That's interesting. You know, I, I don't want to dwell on it, but that's an example of an old Hegelian. And the old Hegelians then, in order to cash in theologically, they had to remove Hegel's deliberate ambiguity with the word Geist and move in the direction of identifying it as the Christian God. So that's the old Hegelians. That's the conservative Hegelians. The young Hegelians, on the contrary, insisted, now this is in the words of a 20th century Frenchman, Alexandre Coyavet, that Hegel's first book, The Phenomenology of, of Geist, was the most atheistic book ever written. That's what Koyave argued. It was the most atheistic book ever written. And Koyave followed the line that began with the pioneer of the young Hegelians, Ludwig Feuerbach, uh, who interpreted Hegel's Geist to mean that all talk about God was alienated talk about human self-consciousness. In other words, human beings are really talking about themselves and their own development, but they're alienated from their own development, and so they reify this into uh, an image of a mythological god. So A. Feuerbach is kind of the father of, of Hegelian atheism and the, the pioneer of the young Hegelians. 
So wh- what do you think? Is Geist for Hegel a cipher for what he's trying to get at? Or is it actually a thing or a process? Is it God? Or is the whole point that Hegel himself never tells you? Yeah, uh, this is a part of the, the heart of the problem of interpreting Hegel. You know, if, if you're a Koyave or a Feuerbach, you say Hegel was afraid of the Prussian censors and he didn't want to get in trouble, you know, like Fichte had gotten into trouble uh, by seeming to be an open atheist. So the left-wing interpretation says that it was a, de- de- deliberate, um, a deliberate subterfuge to avoid the censors. The right-wing Hegelians say, no, the, the parallelism between the development of human self-consciousness and the mythological or representational picturing of the Christian God, uh, the Trinity, of creation and incarnation and redemption and fulfillment um, actually converge. And we'll get to that at the end. Because I think that's, that's where you really have the heart of the problem with Hegel. Anyway, I, I do think the right-wing reading that Hegel was intensely interested in and concerned with modernizing the tradition of Christian orthodoxy uh, I think that's the appropriate reading of Hegel. I don't think that he was just uh, uh, committing subterfuge. Is, then that's reason to uh, to take him seriously for a, in a theological context. I do. I, I agree with Peter Mollish about this, that a consistently theological reading of Hegel is possible. And let me just indicate some reasons for that. Uh, Several, anyway. Uh, His mature work now, you know, he went on from the phenomenology of Geist and published the logic and then the encyclopedia and his uh, philosophy of history, philosophy of art, philosophy of religion. I mean, it's it's really a massive uh, 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 output and it would take um, an intense and long-term study to master all of this. But it has many interesting theological elements. For example, his philosophy of history is a kind of secular salvation history, culminating in an anti-apocalyptic realized eschatology. Let me say that again. He develops a kind of secular salvation history, which uh, uh, is anti-apocalyptic, which is arguing that in a state of absolute consciousness, the eschatological promises of reconciliation are fulfilled. And that's where, you know, Francis Fukuyama gets his idea of the end of history. That, right, so that we've already, we're already in heaven. We've arrived. We're there. Reconciliation is real, if only we realize it. Uh, the contemporary philosopher, whom I really like a lot, Giorgio Agamben, uh, puts his finger right on this problem. Uh, and it's very fascinating in his little book on the Epistle to the Romans, The Time That Remains, Agamben puts his finger uh, on the, the doctrine of the atonement and the way that Hegel uses Luther's German language uh, uh, for anti-Messianic purposes. Now, what Agamben means by that 
is that the atonement is really the initial act um, of uh, the end of all things. And its meaning cannot be uh, contained to Calvary. In fact, its meaning on Calvary can only be confirmed and verified by the parousia, by the coming of the messianic kingdom. So you cannot have a realized eschatology. Uh, you cannot de-apocalypticize uh, the gospel uh, through a kind of a, uh, a realized salvation history in some state of human consciousness without cutting the heart out of the gospel. That's Agamben's argument in this little book. He calls Hegel an anti-Messianic thinker. And I think that's an interesting criticism. We'll get to that at the end. Another factor that I, that I find very interesting, theologically interesting in Hegel is his doctrine of civil society, which a lot of democratic theorists have picked up on that institutions like marriage and the family, uh, uh, the marketplace, uh, the state, uh, organized religion, and uh, you could probably add a bunch of other things too uh, to that. But civil society, that is to say, um, these various institutions by which human beings associate with, you, with, with each other for purposes of cultural, economic, and uh, spiritual exchange uh, are kind of the building blocks uh, of any uh, possible democratic society. And so you can't allow the state, which is the most ambiguous uh, of these institutions, to absorb all the other institutions without uh, creating a, a, a demagoguery uh, presiding over a, a mass population that has been dehistoricized, something along those lines. But I find Hegel's doctrine of civil society uh, ripped right out of his training in the old Lutheran doctrine of the orders of creation. Right, I yeah, mean, yeah. It, it, it's quite obvious to me that that's, that's his source, and he's simply modernizing and secularizing the orders of creation. So there's a bunch of other things that are interesting too, but what's mainly captured attention in the 20th century is Hegel's doctrine of the Trinity as that which accounts for a true infinite. Remember we talked earlier about a true infinite, namely one capable of the finite. And uh, it's a very interesting. You know, at, when at the University of Berlin, Hegel's kind of rival at, at Berlin was Friedrich Schleiermacher, teaching Christian dogmatics. And Schleiermacher relegated the doctrine of the Trinity to an appendix in his dogmatics, with oh. the comment that it could have no direct bearing upon the religious consciousness. It's just too confusing. <laughs> This is why I've never understood the enthusiasm for Schleiermacher. Oh, okay. We don't need to go down that road. But but anyway, I mean, and so Hegel, uh, knowing this, boasted that his philosophy 
was the only contemporary champion of the doctrine of the Trinity. So, well, you got to give him credit for that. Right. But what, what an irony here. You know, I'll talk about the ironies at the end that the, um, it's the speculative philosopher Hegel that is interested in the doctrine of the Trinity, whereas the pious uh, dogmatician Schleiermacher, who thinks it's useless. useless. So <laughs> that should tell you that these conflicts of the early 19th century were pretty, uh, pretty contorted anyway. <laughs> okay. All right. So as I mentioned already earlier, in the eyes of Hegel's opponents nowadays, in the 20, 21st century, Hegel's very desire for a Trinitarian account of God capable of interacting with the finite and also of the finite capable of inter uh, participating in the infinite, this was seen as the first slippery step on the slope to pantheism and ultimately atheism. And uh, I wrote about this in the book I wrote with Brent Atkins on Deleuze, uh, where the contemporary Marxist atheist philosopher Slavoj Žižek crossed swords. And, I, and Žižek is, uh, considers himself to be the great contemporary advocate of left-wing Hegelianism. So atheistic Hegelianism. He crossed swords with the Christian Platonist John Milbank of radical orthodoxy fame. And it was precisely over this issue of Hegel interpretation. And Zizek rebuked Milbank for his, uh, what you were just kind of saying, his dreamy otherworldly God in majesty above it all. Uh, from a distance, God is watching us in perfect harmony, you know, that kind of thought. The world might be full of wars in Ukraine and starvation in Somalia and all sorts of other woes. Um, but uh, the, for Zizek, the Christian Platonist takes refuge in God above it all, watching from a distance. And Zizek said, I and my atheism am a better Christian than you, Milbank. <laughs> So I think that's a kind of a delicious uh, 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 battle that was fought out there. You can take a look at my, uh, the book on Deleuze if you're interested in that. Yeah, I think we talked about this in our episode a couple years ago on St. Paul among the philosophers. So what, 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 what we're witnessing today is that a lot of the Trinitarian renewal, knowingly or not, beginning with Karl Barth, continuing on through Jungel and Pannenberg, and now uh, in some, uh, 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 Robert Jensen, and uh, many others, of course, uh, also um, Pannenberg's uh, follower in California, Ted Peters, uh, and many others, uh, Catherine Lacogna, and um, certain Catholic theologians and so forth. So there was a, there's been a wide uh, spread 20th century renewal of the Trinitarian account, which is indebted to Hegel whether they know it or not. Uh, but now among your generation, Sarah, the younger generation, we witness a reaction against the Trinitarian renewal. 
with a reassertion of the metaphysical doctrine of divine simplicity. And this was something actually that Hegel experienced in his own lifetime. By the end of the 1820s, uh, the, the, the older Hegelians were coming to Hegel's defense against attacks by fellow Lutherans who were accusing him of pantheism and atheism. Uh, so already this issue was being raised in Hegel's lifetime. And the Catholic historian of dogma, uh, Louis Ayers, uh, in his otherwise rather good book on the Nicene uh, faith, amusingly titled a chapter, In Spite of Hegel, Dungeon, and Sword. <laughs> Riffing on the hymn, In Spite of uh, Fire, Dungeon, and Sword, right, or whatever that is. Um, and he, of course, lays the case out against Hegel, inspired by the interpretation of, of Cyril O'Regan that I mentioned earlier, that Hegel was a theosophist and a Gnostic, which I think is just an utterly misguided reading of Hegel. And, you know, I here confess to the audience, I felt the full wrath of this reactionary theology in the re reviews of my book, Divine Simplicity, Christ the Crisis of Metaphysics, uh, by this resurgent theological right-wing contemporary neo-Thomists, whether Roman Catholic, Reformed, or Anglo-Catholic. And it was since the publication of that book, this controversy has what, is, what has forced me, once again, to come to terms with Hegel. Oh, okay. So you're coming full circle here. And I should say, you know, you wrote this book on divine simplicity, but not to endorse divine simplicity, but to challenge it, Christologically, right? Well, yeah, what I, what I really argued in the book is that divine simplicity is best taken as a rule for theological speak, speech. When you recognize the uniqueness in being of the creator of all that is not God, recognize that God in being is not like us creatures, mortal uh, with a beginning and a, a termination, uh, but God's being is qualitatively that of the one who can be the creator of all that is not God. So it's a stipulation, it's a rule. Uh, recognize the majesty, the transcendence, the otherness of God in all that you say about God. What I reject is the metaphysical interpretation of simplicity, uh, which is the kind of, of timeless, space, spaceless self-identity uh, arrived at rationally uh, by philosophical assent, which then plays a kind of criteriological role in theology and, to my mind, you know, inhibits, if not subverts, the basic affirmations of the economy, that out of free love God created a world other than God and that in love for this creation, God became a creature in its midst, Jesus Christ, so that in the end, uh, through this uh, incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, and by his Spirit, the creation itself will dwell with God, and God will dwell with the creation. So, that 
leads me up to where I will conclude this podcast now with my talking about where I'm at today on the interpretation of Hegel. Is that all right? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, I mentioned Peter Mollish earlier, who, who wrote a really excellent study in Proecclesia 15, 16 years ago. And all I want to reference here is that a consistently theological reading of Hegel is possible. That is to say, it's possible to reject the left-wing interpretation, interpretive line uh, and say that Hegel was theologically sincere and serious. At the same time, just this reading, in my mind, is rich with ironies. Now, here's the first irony. In spite of all the Thomists arguing how important the Thomas's engagement is with Aristotle to overcome the, the problems of Platonism inherited from Augustine, Hegel's point of departure is also Aristotle. And indeed, the doctrine from Aristotle's metaphysics that the divine is thought thinking itself is Hegel's starting point in terms of theological reflection. What Aristotle said, Hegel takes as axiomatic. The divine is thought thinking itself. And let me just remark here. That's obviously, Sarah, a psychological model of the divine as a mind. And secondly, then, such a starting point in metaphysics is accessible by reason alone as a kind of natural theology which can arise to thinking of and in this way, to a degree, participating in the majesty of timeless, spaceless self-identity. If I can think God as this utterly pure, active being, timeless, spaceless self-identity, thought thinking itself, I can, if I can, in my thought by reason alone, arise to such a conception of the divine, to that degree I am spiritually participating in it. Does that make sense to you? I guess. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I get the point. Yeah. Well, if, if God is mine, and with my creaturely mind, I can arise to the thought of God as thought thinking itself, then to that degree, uh, my mind is per participating in the very divine reality that it is thinking. That's the idea, anyway. I, I see the idea. I'm just not sure I, I'm sold on the leap to uh, divine participation, but we don't need to worry about that. Participation is a key idea in, the, in these systems of metaphysics. Anyway, let's just go on from there. Here's what I find fascinating. What's the precedent for Hegel's uh, starting point and... Um, natural theology. The precedent is the odd but interesting book of Anselm of Can Canterbury called the Monologian. Now, most people pay attention to the Prosologian, which contains the famous ontological proof for the existence of God. But the Monologian is Anselm's attempt, by reason alone, 
solo ratione, by reason alone, to think of an eternal trinity. And what Anselm thinks is an act of consciousness or mind in three stages. The thinker, the thought, and the affirmation of the thinker's thought. Representationally, as Hegel would put it, God the Father thinks, God the Son is thought, and God the Holy Spirit confirms the thought of the thinker in love. As always, the Holy Spirit is the least convincing aspect of this triad. I think what's least convincing is that it's all based on a psychological model. (laughs) Well, that too. That's the precedent that Hegel has for this in the tradition, Anselm's monologium. Hegel's innovation is to remark that this tautological doctrine that God is God in simple majesty as thought, thinking, and willing itself, that whole complex inherited from Anselm, Hegel observes, is an abstraction that has no genuine actuality. Why? because it is not yet actualized and enriched by the encounter with what it is not. Ah, That is to say, the creation. And so there's a kind of abstract otherworldliness of God as God thinking and willing itself. Um, And in this abstraction, and this is the kind of the point at which the Catholic neo-Thomist, rather, critics, just a launch with a vengeance. By inward necessity, God moves out to create a world that is not God and indeed to identify with it before recovering itself as actually real and enriched thereby. So the abstract otherworldly God is God dies as it were in its self-identification with the non-divine creation until it recovers itself and realizes that this self-disruption has been actually its gain of actuality and its profound enrichment uh, through the encounter with the negative. But this is God needing to create, not God joyfully and freely willing to create. That is the issue. That is exactly the issue. And that's how the left-wing Hegelians like Slavoj Žižek interpret this. Um, the otherworldly abstract God died in the cross of Christ. God is dead. But the revolutionary spirit arises from the death of God and, and takes on that role in the, in the consciousness uh, uh, of the followers uh, of the and so forth. Now, but that's the left-wing interpretation of Hegel. Hegel said religion, especially the consummate religion Christianity, that's what he called Christianity is the consummate religion, which means the final religion, uh, instantiates this line of thought that I just went through representationally. Now, what he means by that is that it speaks in images, symbols, and myths, which are forms of thought which are not transparent to consciousness. 
even though Hegel holds that they are true so far as they go, mythically, representationally. So the final step is human thought achieving its true self-consciousness when it realizes its own identity with God in thinking the thought process in God's own self-consciousness as its actual reconciliation with the divine in time and space. That's a, that's a mouthful, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to <laughs> unpack it. Right? Okay. But the idea, idea here is that philosophy comprehends intellectually and truly and achieves the consciousness of the reconciliation, which is the, 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 the creature's thinking's identity with God when it demythologizes the um, religious representations uh, and appropriates their kernel, having shucked the husk of the mythical representation and comprehended its identity with the divine. Hegel calls this absolute consciousness, and it's pretty obviously the apotheosis of human self-consciousness. So that is, you know, I think what Hegel actually means. Uh, and it's a, it's a kind of a fully realized eschatology uh, that uh, we, when we get to this point where we understand philosophically what the Christian religion represents mythologically, then we have understood our actual identity with God, and that's reconciliation. So, here's the big irony. I think Hegel's philosophy is the completion of the Anselmian tradition of faith-seeking understanding. I think it's the denouement of Western scholastic theology. Uh, Hegel himself, I think, sustained the ambiguity of Geist because he did not want to see the implied collapse into pantheism and atheism. And he always insisted that God is both personal subject as well as impersonal substance. At least that's a, a, what I think Hegel's purposes were. Now, my conclusion. Alas, in the end, Spinoza, the philosopher of divine substance and simplicity par excellence, Spinoza wins. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. He asks, whatever could motivate the perfect being to initiate a creation other than some perceived lack, some imperfection in being of the divine? And that would, of course, be a fatal contradiction in the very notion. So your objection earlier that you voiced, Sarah, uh, has the credentials of a Baruch Spinoza. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So what's the alternative? In Spinoza's theology, the perfect being endlessly plays out all possibilities as modes of its own perfect being in an eternal creation. God is, um, um, uh, the world is God passive and God, uh, the creator, is God active but it's one God, and it's God 
in endless sequences playing out all possibilities and compossibilities. Because the perfect being lacks nothing and rather wishes positively, productively to actualize everything possible as a pure expression of lust for life, the will to power. So that's how Spinoza wins. Desire, not as the longing of the restless heart for God, its creator, as in Augustine, but desire as pure, free productivity, demonstrating and enhancing its own implicit power and possibility. In my reading, the profoundest possible development of the sovereign self of modernity, as Nietzsche presented in Zarathustra's prophecy of the Ubermensch. Well, that's a bleak conclusion. It is a bleak conclusion, which is why we have to know Hegel in order to uh, appropriate from him what is of value and discard the rest. Wow. All right. Well, my mind is all twisted up in pretzels from all that. So thank you for doing the hard work of reading Hegel in both English and German so that I and our many listeners did not have to. Yes. I'll grant, I'll grant a dispensation, but I still want you to go read the book I wrote with Atkins on Deleuze. Okay. That sounds like a much more reasonable proposition. Next time on the show, our topic is faith to the aid of science. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show. Today on the show, our topic is the German 19th century philosopher Hegel. Is that right? 19th century? Did I did get to do it? Let me, let me start that over again. Today on the show, our topic is the 19th century German philosophy professor, ah, philosopher. Let me start that one more time. Boy, I'm really groggy this morning. This is not auspicious.